There we go. All right, my bad, guys. Hey, well, welcome. If you're new here, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, now, I'm excited that after a number of special events and things over the last few weeks, we're returning to our regular pattern of studying through a book of the Bible. And we're going to be working through the book of Ephesians in the months to come. But don't turn there. Uh, turn instead to Acts 19. Because before we jump into Ephesians, I want us to see the beginning of the church in Ephesus, the, the people that were there and how the church started. Um, and the reason we're taking a couple weeks to look at this beginning of the church uh, has to do with spring training. Now, I don't know. In the first service, we had almost no baseball fans. Uh, that was very sad. Um, but has anybody ever seen, been to the Cactus League or the Grapefruit League or spring training? Uh, so the Cactus League's in, in Phoenix. Anybody ever seen that? You guys are so close. We're so close. So all the major league players, you may not know this, every single year will either go down to Florida or a ton of them go over to Phoenix and they all play in these little tiny stadiums. So all across the Phoenix metro area, they have like a home stadium for various teams. You know, like the Padres have their stadium or the Angels have a stadium, whatever. And, and they'll, they'll have a, a home stadium that's small and, and they'll work through a, a bunch of games. And even before that, they, do, they, they, they start at the basics. I, I went to one of the games. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I went to one of the games with a friend who was a big baseball fan. And one of the things he loved about Major League Baseball is this, that no matter how good you are, no matter how many awards you win, no matter whether your team won the pennant last year or not, no matter if you're the rookie of the year, whatever, it doesn't matter. Every year at spring training, you go back to the beginning. And you start chasing down grounders and catching fly balls and learning how to throw and catch and slide. And, and essentially what he was describing is they, they rebuild their game every single year. Doesn't matter if you won the World Series, great, you're catching grounders again, right? That's the first day of spring training. And one of the great things is culturally, it, it almost evens a playing field. Every year, all the new people coming up from the minors, all the old veterans returning, they all do the same drills. They all work through it together. They form themselves into a team before they hit the season. And I believe that this kind of season at our church is something like spring training. Um, we've, we've experienced a lot of change over the last couple of years as a church, uh, not the least of which was the pandemic. Uh, obviously, that it kept us from gathering or gathering as freely for a period of time. Uh, there were a number of fault lines and fissures across American culture that divided people, and even some of that has affected folks in, in, in our church and churches in general. Things like race relationships or uh, political perspectives or debates about wearing masks or not. And add to that, I was talking to Dr. Chapel last week, and he was describing that, the glo that American Christianity has undergone what he calls the great rotation, meaning that in every church, a chunk of people have rotated out and gone to different churches, and a chunk of people have come in. And there's a lot of reasons for that we may touch on next week, but, but just knowing that, yeah, we've experienced some of that as well. In addition to that, a happy thing is that we've had a, a number of folks come to faith in the last year or two at the church and are learning what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, just talking to a brother who was saved in December, this year has basically been him going, okay, great, now what do I do? And, and working through how to follow Jesus. And so I want us to start in spring, our spring training with the most fundamental of the fundamentals. I mean, this is us catching, 
learning to catch and throw again. We're going to start in Acts 19 with the beginning of the church in Ephesus answering this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because if we can't get this right, if we don't have the most fundamental of the fundamentals right, then nothing we do is going to matter. So we're going to read a section of Acts 19, and I'm going to summarize it as we go. But this is just give you a flavor of what, what the narrative is like. Acts chapter 19, verse 8, speaking of Paul coming to Ephesus. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then skip to verse 19 and 20, which summarizes the narrative here. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. This is how the gospel came to Ephesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we look at Acts 19 together, Lord, you would, you would allow your word to come alive. You would help us to see in vivid color the beginning of this church and help us to see and really examine what does it mean to be a Christian on the most fundamental level. Lord, we want to be a church that gets it right. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have a friend, uh, Eric Trebetsky, who came and preached here earlier and in the year, and he uh, loves his city of Orange, California. Their church meets downtown in Orange, California at the Women's Club of Orange. It's this old, cool little building there. And his church is, uh, by the standards of California and especially Orange County, he would say, unimpressive. I've had the privilege of getting to worship with them a couple of times. And I can attest to the fact that, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a nice building, uh, no air conditioning. Uh, so on hot days, it is hot. Uh, they, they don't own their own building. They rent one. They have no... Uh, lights that are cool in their room other than the light switch at the back of the room that somebody turns on before the service starts. They don't have a large band full of Orange County uh, rock musicians. They have a few folks with guitars singing the same songs that we do. Um, They have a basic sound system. They have a small pile of donuts. They don't have to have this ridiculous, you know, 12-foot table of donuts we have. Um, And I love, by the way. Uh, they, They, I guess what I'm trying to say is they don't have a lot that humanly speaking, somebody would walk in and go, oh, this is impressive, this is amazing, this really pops, this has flash and sizzle to it. And there was a guy that Eric was talking to that, that you know, he could tell maybe would gravitate toward that kind of thing more, but the guy kept coming back to their church. And so he finally asked the guy after one of the services, hey, so I'm just curious, why do you keep coming back? And he says, oh, I, I love coming here. And Eric said, well, but why? What, what is it that you, you know? And he wasn't even, I think if I remember the story right, this guy, well, he wasn't even sure that this guy was a Christian. And the guy replied, look, I come here and the people here are a bunch of real Christians. Like I see it. You guys are trying to follow Jesus. You're doing the stuff. You talk about the Bible and you try to do it. And I thought, that, that's it. 
That should be the heartbeat of every church. That, that rather than being known for comfortable seats or a nice kids ministry or a good band or, or whatever. You know, I like the preaching style. I like the worship style. I like the way that they structure small groups. More than all of that, I think the fundamental thing that every church is trying to get right or should be trying to get right is this. Are we a group of genuine, real Christians trying to follow Jesus in every area of life? That's what we want to be, I believe. And I believe Acts 19 is the backdrop that helps us answer that question. What does it mean, though, to be a real Christian or a bunch of real Christians? Well, uh, when Paul comes to Ephesus in Acts 19, he had likely been there on a brief uh, visit earlier, kind of passing through, but he comes now to proclaim the gospel. And it is a formidable city for a gospel-preaching guy to take on trying to talk to about Jesus. Now, uh, here a couple of reasons. One, the way I could describe Ephesus is religious Disneyland in this way. Uh, it was the home of one of the great wonders of the ancient world, almost like the, the pyramids and the lighthouse, you know, the, the library of Alexandria and the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. This is a 400-foot tall structure, 200 feet wide, four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. And there was, in that community, it became a hub for religious kind of tourism and pilgrimage. People would come, uh, we'll talk more about Artemis as we go, to the goddess of fertility to beseech them for, for good crops and good years of reproduction among the livestock or to have children. And people would come and there would be people in the market selling little Artemises, you know, you know, and, and, and a little statues you could take home with you. And there were meat vendors selling, you know, uh, Artemis's favorite euros. And, you know, I don't know what they would sell. But they, they, would be, they would be selling food and you have this party atmosphere at times. And Paul comes to this religious hub with the message of the gospel. And as we see him proclaim the gospel, I think we'll see what it means to be a real Christian. First thing we're going to learn, religious practice is not enough to be a real Christian. Now, Paul, in verses 1 through 7, encounters a group of, well, they call themselves disciples. And in fact, these disciples have even been baptized. So Paul initially is thinking, okay, great, these are people just like us. They're, they must be Christians. And Paul asks them, well, have you received the Holy Spirit? And their reply says a lot. Their reply is, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. What, what is the Holy Spirit? And so Paul backs up and goes, whoa, okay, yeah, we, we missed something here. He has verse three, well, into what were you baptized? And they said, with John's baptism. So apparently John the baptizer's um, baptism practice spread through some of the Jews in the ancient world, and, and they got that, but not the message of Jesus. Now notice what these guys have going for them. They are sincere in their religious practice. They did a good thing. They were baptized into John's baptism. They're saying, listen, I, being baptized under John's baptism was saying, I repent. I want, I want to cleanse myself of these sins. But even that, Paul says, is, or, or Paul shows us, is not enough to be a Christian. And in fact, we'll see in a second, he preaches the gospel to them. So let me expand this for our context here. It is not enough, church, to have a sincere religious practice. It is not enough to sit in a church week after week after week. It is not enough to be part of a family where other people believe in Jesus. It is not enough to believe in God. It's not enough to feel sorry when you sin. 
It's not enough to lead a Bible study. None of that is enough. It's not enough to be baptized even. Not enough. And, and I'm testimony to that. Like I grew up in this church, and I was the kid who, who uh, in kids' ministry, was every, every Sunday school teacher's favorite kid. And I know because some of them are still in the church, and they're like, yeah, you were. You were, you were the favorite. <laughs> because I knew all of the religious answers. I knew how to do the religious stuff. Now, it doesn't mean I love Jesus. I just knew how to do the stuff. I was also hated by everyone else in those classes. I'd be like, does anyone know who the baptizer was? Me. You know, just that kid. You know, Andrew, what do you think? Oh, uh, was it Jerome? No, not Jerome. You know, and I was like, pick me, pick me. I was that kid. Um, hated by all, except for the Sunday school teacher. And I think it's an illustration of the fact that you can, you can be in a church. You can practice the religious stuff. You can go through the things that everybody else around you is doing. But honestly, when I look back as a kid, I didn't love the Lord. There was no love for God in my heart. And there was really no, no, no understanding of who Jesus was related to me. It was just a part of a religious practice that I engaged in and was good at. It's not enough. Real Christianity is all about salvation in Jesus. That's the distinguishing mark of real Christianity. It is about salvation in Jesus. Look at uh, verse 4 with me here. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid, had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in, in tongues and prophesying. Okay, what is going on here? Listen, Paul recognizes something good. You were baptized with the baptism of repentance. Repentance is saying, I'm sorry for my sin. But John knew that that wasn't sufficient. Even as he was proclaiming the baptism of repentance, he knew it wasn't sufficient, and he knew the one after me will bring, in a sense, the rest of the message. What is the rest of the message? The rest of the message is Jesus. Now, we don't get the whole sermon Paul preached to these guys, but I think we get a flavor of it in Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians chapter 2 goes like this. Paul says this, even to religious people, okay? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse 1 in chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says you were dead. It wasn't like you were, well, you were a little short, you know. It's not like, well, you almost got an A. You're at like an 88. You know? It wasn't like that at all. You were dead. The religious practice by itself, deadness. But verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not through religious practice, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works or religious practice, so that no one may boast. This is what they lacked. They knew, I'm a sinner, I need to repent of that. They did not know then what to do with their sins. But Jesus answers the question. I'm sorry, I've sinned. God, help me. But how can their sins be washed away? How can their sins be forgiven? It is by 
Christ. It is through Jesus in his death on the cross in their place and, and them accepting and receiving the gift of Jesus Christ by not religious practice, by faith that makes these brothers now Christians. To be brothers, be truly brothers in a sense. Look, for me, as a kid, sitting in kids' ministry, uh, one day after I don't know how many thousands of times the faithful people at the church spoke to me about the gospel, one day what the teacher said something that I had heard a million times. You probably heard a million times. The simple phrase, Jesus died for you. And she was just, she said it matter of fact, you know, and then we got to remember, you know, and to become a Christian and, and remember that Jesus died for you. And in that moment, it was like, bam, something happened in my heart where I saw two things. One, I wasn't a good kid. I was actually a self-righteous jerk. And even in my religious practice, in a sense, was, was sinning. Not in a sense, I was sinning by self-righteousness and pride. But there was a solution and the solution wasn't be better. The solution was believe in Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus awakened my heart, and I went from deadness to life, not through works, not through practice, but through Jesus. Look, that, that is the heartbeat of Acts chapter 9. But the, the, I think this is written and, and preserved for our edification so that we remember it is not sincere religious practice that saves. It is Jesus who saves let me just encourage you, friend, if that's you, if you're good at religious practice, one of the hardest things is this, to lay down your being good at religious practice and say it's not enough, you need Jesus. Let me encourage you to do that today. Second thing we learn here, using Jesus is not enough. Religious practice isn't enough, neither is using Jesus enough. Now, uh, verses 11 through 20 get even weirder. Uh, than that, if that's possible. A, we, we were introduced to Paul, and he's doing this ministry in Ephesus, and it was so extraordinary that it says even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and spirits came out of them. And so it's this itinerant group of Jewish exorcists sees this happening. And they're like, man, we got to go through hours and hours of stuff and reading the Torah and shaking stuff all around. And all this guy does is speak in the name of Jesus and the demons flee. So there's a demon uh, and, and it, it, they're there with the demon. And here's what happens. They come and confront the demon and say, you know, use the name of Jesus. And it says in verse 15, the demon tells them, which this is, I think, one of the funniest sections in the Bible, verse 15, the demon says, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, that didn't go well, and mastered all of them, meaning like he total control of the whole situation, and overpowered them, meaning their power, his power, overpower, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay? Didn't go well. That's the summary. Like if, if these, these itinerant uh, Jewish exorcists that are traveling around, and here's what they're thinking. They're thinking, great, we got our whole kind of religious spiritual system. We see Jesus can do some stuff, so let's grab Jesus and add him to our spiritual system so that we can do what we want. Notice this. These guys, they're not interested in coming to Christ. They're not interested in handing their lives over to Christ. They just want to use Christ to do what they already want to do with their lives. And friends, how many, how many of us have been in that situation before? 
We, we, we don't want to, we want the stuff Jesus does. We don't want Jesus. We want his power for our life, <laughs> in a sense. We got our spirituality. We're going to add him in and get what we want. I, w- I was watching a, a movie recently with Jen, and it was like, the, 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 the title and everything's not important. All you have to know is the scene. scene is, it's kind of mobster Chicago, and this, this girl who seems like a nice girl starts dating a bad guy, young mobster, and you're like, oh, why is she dating this guy? This is terrible. But she wants, to, she wants to get out of Chicago. She wants to not be poor anymore. She wants to see the world, and she feel, you know, and, and you're just thinking, what, what does she see in this guy? Because this guy's a jerk. He's a total jerk. And so, you know, there, they're being lovey, and uh, and she tells the guy, oh, you know why I like you? And he's like, why, babe? You know, or whatever. I don't know. I can't do a mobster voice right now. Uh, he's got the little hat on with a cigarette or whatever. And he's like, ah. You know. And she says, you know why I like you? Because you're going places. And you're like, okay, one, first of all, that's like the most 1920s noir line ever. You're going places. But, but here's the thing you hear in that. She doesn't like the guy. She likes where he, she thinks the guy will take her. And how many of us have done that with Jesus? It's like, I don't like you. I like, I like the thing that I think you're going to do in my life. I like the place you're going to take me. This is one of the problems living in, in a city in El Paso that is familiar with Jesus. People are kind of familiar with Jesus, and many try to use Jesus to get what they want, right? So you have the person that, that wants more health or more wealth or more a miracle or whatever, and they go to a prosperity gospel church that promises those things, that if you just come, you can use Jesus to get what you want, right? It's also the person who needs a miracle, and they come to Jesus for the miracle. It's the person who says, I want to save my marriage or rescue my kid, but they don't want Jesus. They want their marriage to be saved or their kid to come back. Now, some of those desires aren't even bad, but using Jesus is not the same as being a Christian, or trying to use Jesus, rather, is not the same as being a Christian. I remember uh, as a teen, I I really tried hard to pursue purity. I really tried hard to to, to have good relationships, with respectful relationships with girls around me. I really tried hard to read my Bible. I really tried hard. But if, I, but, but if I'm honest, I think I did a ton of that because at the end of the day, I was really hoping that Jesus would make a girl like me. And so I would, I would do this stuff and be like, oh, why isn't any girl liking me? I'm doing this stuff. Right? Or I'd fall into sin somehow. And I would think, oh, great, now I'm never going to get a girlfriend, you know? And in that moment, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my heart is I'm not after Jesus. I'm after the thing that I think Jesus will bring. Here's the truth. Real Christianity comes with the power of Christ for the purposes of Christ. It comes with power, but for his purposes, his purposes. Now, you have to see here that it comes with power, right? These disciples think they know God. They think they know Jesus. But, in, but, but, but Paul preaches the gospel and almost says, like, to make this as clear as possible that they are in Christ, they believe they're baptized again, and then they are filled with the Holy Spirit in this supernatural way. And, and what is that connoting? Why is that detail included? Because, because Luke wants us, the writer of this text, wants us to see, to underline, these people are now Christians because they have the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say Luke is highlighting the obvious active presence of the Spirit in this moment to, to confirm almost for everybody involved that, yes, now, believing in John's baptism? No, not enough. Believing in Christ? Yes, absolutely enough. And with coming to Christ comes the power of the Spirit. 
Now, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul tells the whole church that they, he uses this metaphor, that they've been plunged into the Spirit. In Galatians 4, we learn that through the Spirit, the Christian experiences relationship with their Abba Father. Relationship experiences God. Doesn't just know about God, but experiences a fellowship with God in a way that that non-Christians can't experience. Galatians 5 then calls us to walk by the Spirit, meaning live your life in the power of the Spirit. Now listen, that, we got to pause there and say, that is amazing. That is way better than trying to just be good and religious enough on your own, in your own strength. And it's way better than trying to take what you want to do in life and use Jesus to get it. No, this is more power than you could imagine, but it is for a purpose. It is for the purpose of Christ. We're filled with the Spirit to look more like Christ, to pursue Christ, and to proclaim Christ. That's what you see in the text. Look, look at Paul's example here. He does not you know, realize, man, this is going well. I got handkerchiefs. So he's not by the side of the road with a little booth in, in Ephesus going like, handkerchiefs, 100 denarii, guaranteed to cure anything, right? He doesn't have a little box he stands on. All right, step right up, ladies and gentlemen. I got a deal for you today. If you today, right now, right now, if you give us 100 denarii, you'd have a miracle in your life, right? He doesn't say that. He does not do that. Instead, what we see in the text is that this ministry, if you could even call it that, these miraculous signs and wonders are done as he's going about the, 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 the proclamation of the gospel in the city of Ephesus. The emphasis of his ministry is not, look what I can do, look at these miracles, look at this power. The emphasis of his ministry is, look at Christ. And as he proclaims Christ, the Holy Spirit comes, in a sense, behind him, pointing to Christ. In, in Acts, the, the, the way I think about it is the way the gospel itself, the charisma, the, the proclamation, the heralding of the gospel is the thing being proclaimed and heralded, not the work of the Spirit. But the work of the Spirit, in a sense, takes that billboard and adds flashing lights around it with arrows pointing to it. Look to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's exactly what you see. People are amazed. People are drawn. People hear the gospel. People are saved. Real Christianity comes with the power of Christ. Not just your own strength. It comes with the power of Christ. But it comes with the power of Christ for the purposes of Christ. To follow Jesus. To look more like him and to proclaim him. That is what the Spirit does in our lives. Now, now is the Spirit not glorious? Is, is, is experiencing the Spirit not a gift? Being able to relate to God as Abba Father in that way in prayer, is that not glorious and beautiful? Yes, it is. But the power of Christ is for the purposes of Christ, not our purposes. All right, third thing we learn here. Coexisting with Jesus isn't enough. Religious practice isn't enough. Using Jesus isn't enough to be Christian. And and coexisting with Jesus isn't enough to be called a Christian. Now, Oh, man, the end of Acts 19 is a wild, wild ride. Uh, I'll try to summarize it as briefly as I can. Uh, In Acts 19, uh, the the people who become Christians get rid of their occult practices and books, and people, as a result of so many people in Ephesus coming to Christ, stop buying the little Disneyland Artemis idols all over the place. All the stuffed Artemises that are in a pile stop selling real well. 
They're not, not stuff. They're made out of gold. And what you would do is you'd go on a pilgrimage to Ephesus and you would worship at the Temple of Artemis and then take some of these little statues home so that you could continue worship at home, as, almost as a souvenir. And all of a sudden, people stop buying these little idol-related trinkets. And so there's a blacksmith called Demetrius and he looks at his profit loss margins and goes, okay, last year, this year, we're last, you know, six months, we're always... We're, we're losing money every week. We're, we're, we're selling less and less of these little idols. So he gets all the guildsmen, the craftsmen together and says, basically, look, we got to stop these guys because if they keep going, none of us are going to have jobs. All the idol makers will be out of a job and nobody will come to Ephesus. So we got to stop these guys. And he whips up a crowd and, and essentially he, a riot breaks out in the city of Ephesus. And people began chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, imagine downtown El Paso. The, a mob forms, and everybody rushes to the middle of uh, downtown El Paso at Santa Cinta Plaza, and, and the streets are clogged, and people are just shouting for Artemis. I don't know what our equivalent would be. Great is Chico of the Chihuahuas. Great, you know, whatever, whatever it is. This is what's happening. And... and it says, he, my favorite verse is verse 32. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the whole assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Like, it's just a riot. And, but the thing that's uniting the riot is this. Does somebody say that we can't have Artemis? Does somebody say their God over Artemis, that we can't have that? Let's push back on it. And a Jewish person gets up, and they're like, wait a minute, he's a monotheist. Don't let him speak. And then it says, for two hours they kept shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And nobody could speak to the crowd. And eventually, at the very, very end, this Roman official comes, and his argument is basically, he doesn't even address any of the issues. He just basically says, look, we're, we're, like, we're in a Roman area, okay? Here's the deal. When there's riots in a city, the Roman soldiers don't ask a lot of questions. They just come in and kill people. All right, they just come in and start like destroying stuff. So we all got to go home. Otherwise, somebody's going to notify the Romans. They're going to come in and clean house in Ephesus. They're not going to ask a lot of questions. They don't care about Artemis. They care about order. So we got to go home. And everybody goes, oh, well, I guess he's right, you know. And they finally go home. Now, what, what's the point of that story? Well, there's a lot there. But I just want to point out one very basic observation. Just trying to coexist with Jesus doesn't work. Because here's, here's what Ephesus wanted. Ephesus was happy to accept other gods into the hall of gods. They were happy to say, hey, you've got a god? Great. Put him up there next to the other, you know, the, other, the rest of the Roman pantheon. And, and sure, you can worship him too. As long as you keep worshiping Artemis or let people worship Artemis. And, and we, we put Caesar up there as well. So as long as your god will go on the shelf with the other gods, we got no problems. But Christianity comes in and says, no, we're clearing the shelf. There's one. And all of a sudden, that gets threatening. And even in our culture today, America is very much the same thing. America's like, cool, you believe whatever you want. You have a higher power. You have a thing. You have a God. You like Jesus. Okay, great. This guy likes Jesus. This guy likes Buddha. This guy's like Gandhi. Whatever, you know. Get, do what works for you. But as soon as you show up and go, we're clearing the shelf. There's only one. People are like, whoa. And living as a Christian often in a sense, threatens the gods of the age. And the reason this is so important is I think in America, we have what I, what I, what I would call a, a build-a-bear Christianity much of the time. Has anyone ever been to build-a-bear? That was a big thing like in the 90s. All right, so build-a-bear is one of the most disturbing things I've ever experienced. 
So my, my sister went to Build-A-Bear. We were in, on vacation in some city or traveling in some city, and they had a Build-A-Bear thing. So you go into the room, and there's these limp, like, like, uh, uh, like stuffed animals without stuffing, and they're just lying there. And so you pick a carcass up, and then they, they shoot, like, feathers or foam or whatever into it. It's like, you know. And then you add its head, and you can put a little heart inside of it, and you dress it up, and you give it a little hat and a little outfit. And you walk out, and then you pay approximately $500, or, and they give you this bear... And it's just exactly the bear you want. It's like, oh, I don't like that little hat. I like this little hat. Oh, I don't want my bear to have green eyes. I want him to have blue eyes. And you take that home and you're like, oh, this is my Build-A-Bear. And I think so many times that's what Americans do related to Christianity. They'll say, look, this is what I want. And sure, I like, I like this general shape of Christianity, but I want to have this. I want to add this. I want it to look like this. I don't want it to feel this. I want Christianity without the judgment. Love is love, right? Everybody just loves whoever they want. I'm going to love whoever I want. I don't need a marriage license to do that. And, and, but, I, but I love the part that Jesus loves people. I love that. Or other people are like, you know what? I'm angry about things. I'm angry. I want an angry Christianity that's going to help me take back the country. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to do this. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a social justice kind of person, and I want, I want to see these things happen, and so I'm going to take Christianity and shove it into that. And here's the reality. Some of that stuff is not necessarily bad, but here's what is bad. Trying to put Jesus on the shelf next to your other, other idols does not and cannot work. It can't. This is what you find in the town of Ephesus. Look at Acts 19, verse 17. Real Christianity turns the world upside down, starting with your world. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. What's going on there? They're seeing there's an incompatibility here. I can't just put Jesus up on the shelf with the other stuff. He is the shelf now. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When you come to Christianity, when you come to Christ, real Christianity turns the world upside down, starting with your world. You begin to see, I can't just live my life the way I want to and also have Jesus. It's not even a 50-50 split. Well, listen, Jesus, you can have 50% of my life, but I got you know, to keep 50% here. And I got to be able to watch the shows I want to watch. It's like messing with the dial. I'm out. Like real Christianity means your whole world gets turned upside down. Like what they did here, bringing these books together and burning them in the sight of all, the commentators believe that was it, that the, the estimate of what they did ranged from losing thousands of dollars, which is like ow, to millions of dollars. Right? Th- this was costly, and they weren't even saying, "Listen." I want to maintain my lifestyle, so at least I'm going to sell the magic books, get the money, and keep doing what I want to do. Look, this is them. This is the the early Ephesian church going all in with Jesus, not coexisting, saying, Jesus, you take everything. I I see in this the the echo of Paul later in his letters where he says, whatever gain I counted as loss, I counted it as loss 
for the sake of knowing Christ, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Why are these people getting rid, in a sense, of their treasure? Because they're not getting rid of their treasure. This stuff no longer is their treasure. Jesus is their treasure. Jesus is the thing they want. And they now see, listen, I want Jesus. This is holding me back from Jesus. So out the window it goes. Look, I, I remember uh, I, was a, I was a UTEP uh, a student once upon a time, about 30 years ago. And uh, I'm just kidding, not 30 years ago. It feels like that, though. Um, I remember mid-college that I w- wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a lawyer, even though I knew that God had placed a call in my life for ministry. And I wanted to be a lawyer because I thought, well, listen, I, I want to have a legal degree, and I want to be able to make money, you know, and I want to be able to have a career. And then if, if I can fit Jesus into that, then I will do that. Now, listen, I'm not saying everybody has to be a pastor. Everybody has to be called to vocational ministry. What I am saying is this. There, there was an area in my life where I was, I was wanting to follow Jesus as long as he coexisted with my other desires for my life. And I remember I had this moment where I had to just like decide, I really, I really am gonna do what I feel Jesus is calling me to do. And I was behind the UTEP library. There's a little space between that building and the business building. And so I was back there, just pacing, pacing. And I just began to, to cry. I began to cry because I just thought, man, this is so hard. I, I really feel like I'm, I'm pushing things that I've wanted to do for years onto the table and saying, Jesus, you can, you can take it. This is, this is yours. I remember crying and praying, and the student walked out of the business building, and they saw me crying and then did one of these, like, <laughs> you know, like, I'll just go out another door, and they just went back in. And I just remember thinking, I look absolutely ridiculous. I'm on, like, I'm on my knees behind the UTEP library building crying because because I so badly wanted my life on my terms plus Jesus. And in that moment, I think it was a key moment for me where where I had to pray and go, Lord, I don't want my life on my terms plus you. I want you, and you are my life. And again, I'm not saying everybody has to be a pastor, but that is the heart of what it means to be a Christian, is to take every area of your life. This is what we're going to see in the book of Ephesians. We're going to take every area of life from, from race relations to reconciliation to marriage to parenting to work to, to, to conflict, all of that stuff. All of it gets pushed onto the table and you say, Jesus, what do you want? Jesus, what do you want me to do with my life? Because you're my life. Whatever I need to do to get more of you, that's what I care about. Like, that's what you see in this passage. Now, let me just close by saying this. Uh, a few, few days ago, we had a staff lunch, and Alec, it was Alec's first staff lunch after coming back after being out a while with Bodhi being in the NICU. And, and he, he echoed those words that, that Eric Trubetsky shared. He just was so, with tears in his eyes, he just said, I'm so grateful that Cross of Grace is a place of real Christians who give up their time, who give up their energy, who give up their money to serve people because they have a heart of Christ. And church, let me just encourage you. I really do believe. I say, look, just look at you guys right now. That I'm just filled with gratefulness. You guys are a bunch of real Christians. And you don't gather here because we have anything overly attractive 
Our fog machine broke a decade ago. No, I'm just kidding. We never had a fog machine. No lasers, no stuff. This is my prayer, though, as we walk through the season of spring training, that we would never lose the most fundamental of the fundamentals, that we be a place of genuine Christians where, where one, we're not using religious practice, we're, we're, we're making Jesus our salvation, where two, we're not trying to use Jesus for our purposes, we're saying we want your power for your purposes, and three, where we're not saying let's coexist with Jesus, Lord, transform my life, turn it upside down. And in a few weeks, we're going to have baptisms. Let me just encourage you, just like these disciples here, if you have not been baptized as a Christian, and I mean that when I say that, as a Christian, I think Acts 19 would call you to be baptized. Uh, if, if maybe even you were baptized as a, as a kid or as a baby and you didn't have anything to do with it, or, or maybe like me, you were baptized in a, in a pharisaical part of your life where you were like, yeah, I didn't love Jesus, I just wanted to get the points. If that's you, let me encourage you. Baptism serves us. It's that moment of saying where we say over people, buried in the likeness of Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. We're not just saying, I'm sorry for my sins. We're saying, I'm sorry for my sins, and I cling to Jesus who gives me new life. Let me encourage you to consider that if you've not been baptized. And if you have been baptized, let we, it should encourage you every time you see somebody being baptized because you're like, that's a picture of me. It reminds you. And the second reminder that we have is communion. So uh, we're going to actually take communion in response to the message today. I'm going to invite Chuck to come up. So go ahead uh, if, and, and grab that, that little uh, communion packet near you. And let's, let's kind of lean in as Chuck walks us through communion today.